please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14. People killing, people dying. Children hurt, and you hear them crying. Can you practice what you preach, or would you turn the other cheek? Father, 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 help us. Send some guidance from above, because people got me, got me asking, where is the love? In their 2003 song, Where is the Love?, the Black Eyed Peas expressed this deep and age-old question and longing. And 20 years before them, Queen and David Bowie expressed a similar longing and question. Turned away from it all like a blind man. Sat on a fence, but it, didn't wor- it don't work. Keep coming up with love, but it's so slashed and torn. Why, why, why? Why can't we give love one more chance? And then nearly 20 years before them, Jackie DeShannon sang this, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing there's just too little of. Hopefully you're familiar with those songs. If you're not, I'm sorry. I'm not going to sing them. I'm not going to rap them. But these, these songs are great examples of the longing, the, the sort of the age-old wrestle and questioning that songwriters and storytellers and even religious and political leaders have expressed throughout the generations. Why is there such a lack of love in our world? Why is there so little love when you consider how beautiful and powerful love is? Why are we so bad at it? Why are our relationships so shot through with conflict and dysfunction and a lack of love? Well, as Christians, we know the answer in part, right? We, we understand what God's word tells us, that in our sin and our rebellion against God, we turn from love and actually have turned to pride and selfishness. In our alienation and separation from God, we've become insecure and lonely people that really struggle to connect and pretend and perform for one another, trying to earn each other's love. When we bought into the lie that God isn't good and that he isn't loving, we actually disconnected from the source of love that empowers us to love. And so being made in God's image means, hey, we still can love and experience love in fits and starts, but the degree to which we've been called to and intended to experience love and give love, oh, it's far too broken. It falls short. It's shot through with sin and dysfunction. And so do we have hope for change? Or what is our hope for change? Can we actually love? Can our world actually experience love as it was meant to and as we're called to? Well, to answer this question, first we need to recognize this. Here's something about the way that we have been hardwired by God as human beings. We give love to the extent that we've experienced love. Now, this isn't just sort of like a, a scientific formula that, that's sort of like as perfectly as you've experienced love is exactly how you give love. It's not some, some kind of just mathematical equation. Life is far too messy. However, the principle stands. We need to recognize that, that we will never love to the extent we were intended to. We'll never love as God called us to unless we ourselves have had a profound experience a transformational experience of love. And so throughout this series, this Relationships Reform series, we've been drawing attention to the the ways that our relationships are shot through with pride and selfishness and dysfunction and conflict, the way that sin corrupts and has formed our relationships and how we need to be reformed by the gospel. 
But here is the truth. Underneath that, underneath that call to reformation, underneath that call from the gospel, is a profound, identity-altering, life-transformation experience with God's love. Like at the heart, at the root of the gospel, is God's love to us through Jesus Christ that transforms everything. And so the love that this world is crying out for, the love that you and I lack, look, it doesn't come through more education and better political policy. It doesn't come through better therapy and better relationship coaching. As good as those things can be, they are powerless to transform us. They are powerless to give us the kind of love that is actually going to transform us so that we can be people loving as God has called us to love. We need something greater. We need something more profound, more deep, more powerful. We need something supernatural to transform us. And so if we give love to the extent we have experienced love, our love is always going to come up short unless we are transformed by the love of God, and unless we experience the divine love of God from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And when that happens, our capacity to love and being empowered to love actually falls in line with what this passage calls us to this morning. And so here's the good news in the power of the gospel as expressed in Colossians 3, 12 through 14, that God has graciously, he's abundantly lavished his love on us. And in that, we can be those who put on love. And so here's the main point for us this morning that I want us to understand who we are as followers of Christ, that we are beloved people who put on love. We're beloved people who put on love. And so I want to break this into two parts. We first want to look at what it means that we're beloved people, and second, what it means to put on love. And so the call to compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and love and forgiveness is all grounded in the reality that we are beloved, that we are dearly loved by God. As Paul writes in verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. What is the ground for us putting on all these things? It's because we are God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. This is language that both the Old Testament and New Testament uses to describe God's people. God's people are chosen. That means God has set his particular and purposeful love on his people to to rescue them and to redeem them. He's made this promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. God's people are also holy, meaning he set them apart. He's broken their bondage and slavery to sin and set them apart for his purpose, and now they live for him. And God's people are also dearly loved. Look, God's love for you is not general and generic. He doesn't love you like, he loves that, like you love that distant family member that you barely know or that weird uncle that you have that you sort of have to love because he's family. No, God dearly loves his people. They are dear to his heart. He has deep, deep affection to them. His his heart is tender towards them, like a father towards a dearly loved child. But friends, we certainly don't deserve this love. Like, we haven't earned it. Let's, Let's make no mistake. The only thing we have earned is judgment. Like, we have been anything but loving. We, we have been sexually immoral, we have been prideful, we have been impure, we have been angry, we have lied, we've been malicious, we've slandered, we've done all of those things among many other things. The last thing in the world that we have been is loving as God has called us to love. However, in our sin, in our rebellion, God's love comes to us. God's love meets us right in that sin and meets us in the very things that we are called to put on in these verses. 
And so God, in his love and his grace, shows us compassion and kindness. Like Christ shows us great compassion and kindness. The word compassion in the Greek means the bowels of mercy. And so in the ancient world, when you talked about someone's bowels, you were talking about the deepest part of them, the core of their being. And so to show compassion, to have compassion, means at the deepest core of yourself, you feel mercy towards someone. At the deepest part of your being, you actually look at someone in their sin, their suffering, their ruin, and you feel mercy towards that person. And this is what comes to us through Jesus Christ, compassion. Over and over and over again in the Gospels, we see Jesus being compassionate and showing compassion. He shows compassion to the man who is blind as he heals them, the man who is lame as he heals him. He shows compassion to the people that he delivered from demonic possession and, and loved them. He, he shows compassion to the woman at the well as he forgives her sin. He shows compassion to the woman with the issue of blood who's been bleeding for years and years and years as he heals her. He shows compassion to Jairus' daughter as he raises her from the dead over and over and over. Jesus' compassion is an overwhelming testimony of the Gospels. In fact, as the theologian B.B. Warfield points out, the emotion most attributed to Jesus in the Gospels is compassion. If you survey the Gospels, and you look at sort of the emotional state of Christ and what he felt while he was on this earth more than any other feeling mentioned, it's compassion. And so friends, let me ask you this question. What do you think Christ's heart is for you in your sin and suffering? Like when you think of yourself as one who, who, is sin, who sins and who suffers, what do you think Christ's heart towards you is? Judgment? Rejection? Condemnation? But like, what do you think wells up inside of Christ when he sees you? Like, friends, yes, God judges sin. He is good and he is just. But more so, what, provo what is provoked in God when he sees our sin and suffering is not judgment, it's compassion, it's mercy. Well, what God most feels towards you and your sin and suffering is compassion for you. It's mercy, it's love, it's grace. This is God's heart for you. It is compassion. It's compassion that caused God to send Jesus Christ into our world. It's compassion that Jesus willingly came to this world and became a man and died for your sin and for mine. God is a God of compassion. And also, as Romans 2, 4 tells us, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads to our salvation. Or as Titus 3, 4 through 7 says, but when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saves us. What happens when the kindness of God shows up on the scene? Salvation, redemption, reconciliation, renewal. He saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. The kindness of God has rescued you and saved you. And through the spirit, you've been washed and renewed and regenerated, and you have the hope of eternal life. This is what the kindness of God does. Now look, kindness is not the same thing as just being nice. Let's not shallow out this word. No, kindness is connected to goodness. It is acting good on behalf of someone for their good. 
And so God's kindness to you in salvation is not just him being nice. It's not just him sort of poo-pooing away your sin. No, in his kindness, he redemptively and powerfully exposes sin. He shows just how dark and deep and dangerous and serious your sin is, but through Jesus Christ, what does he show? That his love and his mercy and his kindness and his grace are even greater. And he saves you in his kindness. In his love and grace, God, through Jesus Christ, not only shows us compassion and kindness, but also humility and gentleness and patience. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives us a glimpse into his own heart. Here's what we read. This is what Jesus tells us. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take upon my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says that he is lowly, which in the, that word lowly in the Greek is the exact same word that is gentle in Colossians 3. As uh, Charles Spurgeon pointed out, this is the one place in the Gospels where Jesus talks about his own heart, gives us a glimpse into his own heart. He says that he is lowly and humble. And look, Jesus saying this, he isn't just talking about emotions that he's feeling in a moment. He's talking about the core of who he is. The heart, your heart, is the core of who you are. And so when Jesus says, this is my heart, he's saying, this is the core of who I am. I am gentle. I am humble. And so what does it mean that Jesus is gentle? It means that he's not rash and reactionary. It means that Jesus doesn't fly off the handle and have tantrums. He doesn't take your sin and rub your face in it and say, how could you be so stupid? How could you do this? He isn't sarcastic and cutting with you in your sin. No, rather, he's caring. He's understanding. He's inviting and he's nurturing. He's like a great and wise physician that will be honest with you about your ailments, honest with you about your sin, but he's going to bring healing and salvation to build you up, not tear you down. As Dane Orland puts it, the most natural posture for Jesus is not pointed finger, but open arms. This is what it means that Jesus is gentle. Jesus also says he's humble in heart. And we can think about humility as a virtue, and it very much is. Having a posture of humility before God and before others, where we're not puffed up, we're not arrogant. But humility is also sort of a position. It's a circumstance. And so to be humble means to put yourself in a low situation, in a low circumstance. And so when Jesus says that he is humble, he is talking about not just a virtue, but he's also talking about sort of where he lives, where he hangs out. You see, though Jesus is the son of God, though he is the high and exalted one, he is, the, he is God in the flesh, he humbles himself and becomes a man. And not just a man, he becomes a lowly man. He becomes the son of a carpenter. He becomes a homeless Jewish rabbi, lowly. And here's what he is saying by saying he's humble. I'm accessible. I'm accessible. I come down and I get right in the sin and the suffering and the muck and the mire with you. I am accessible. You can be near me because I am near you. I identify with you in your suffering. I am near you in the midst of your sin and suffering. Jesus is humble. He's accessible. And he's so accessible, he's so humble that he not only comes near to us as a man, but he also gives his life for our sin. You see, through the humility of Christ, we're saved. We, we experience salvation because Christ is humble. And here's what also is beautiful for us, that Christ, even as the resurrected and reigning king, even as the one who has ascended at the right hand of God, who has all power and authority, 
who's no longer the suffering servant, but is the righteous and reigning king who's going to come back and judge and renew all things. Though that's who he is, he is still, he is still humble of heart. This is still who he is. He has not changed. He still identifies with us. As Hebrews 4.15 tells us, that Jesus is our high priest in heaven who sympathizes with us in our weakness. And to sympathize means to suffer with, to co-suffer. And so in your sin, in your suffering, Jesus still is with you. He still identifies with you. He is still near you. Look, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't just pop smoke and peace out. No, he is with you through the spirit. He is closer to you than he has ever been. And he draws near to you in the midst of your sin and your suffering. Even when he has to discipline, even when he is correcting, he's near to you powerfully, redemptively, gently, patiently, lovingly. This is who our God is. This is who our Savior is. And so let me ask, have you experienced the compassion and the kindness and the gentleness and the patience and the nearness of Christ? Could it be, let me, let me just ask you to be honest for a moment, could it be that the reason you struggle and outright fail to be compassionate and gentle and patient and humble is because you've never experienced those things from God? You've never actually had a transforming experience through the Spirit with Christ. You've never actually experienced God's compassion and his kindness and his gentleness and his, and his mercy and his patience with you. But for those of you who are in Christ, because this is an ongoing struggle, those of you that actually have experienced salvation in Christ, how, how do you believe God sees you? How do you believe God sees you in your sin? How do you think he responds when you sin? Do you think he gets irritated and annoyed at you? Do you think he pulls away from you and says, hey, you made your bed, you lie in it? Do you think he, he, he starts to have this like furrowed brow and, and starts to throw these sort of little judgments at you and like, yeah, maybe he's not sending you to hell, but boy, he's teed off at you. Is that how you see God's heart to you in the midst of your sin and your suffering? Do you act impatiently towards others? Do you act without compassion and without kindness and without gentleness because that's who you think God is? Or maybe you're just those things and so you think God's that way because you're that way. Regardless, here's what we need to recognize, friends. This is not the heart of God towards us. This is not the heart of Christ. If this is who we think our God is, then we do not see him rightly. We do not see him correctly. We miss God's love and his compassion and his kindness and his patience and his gentleness towards us. We miss that our God is a forgiving God a God who bears with us in the midst of our sin and our suffering. So friends, here is the good news of the gospel. Through Jesus Christ, God has brought compassion and mercy. God has brought kindness and gentleness and patience. Through Jesus Christ, we can know God as these things. We can know salvation. And if you are in Christ, if you have turned from your sin, if you have turned from your rebellion, you've turned from your trying to pretend and perform, and you have turned to Christ and experienced his grace, his love and his compassion and his kindness and his gentleness and his patience overflow to you. They're in abundance to you. Don't let your lack of faith miss this. Don't, let, don't judge God through the lens of how you see other people and how your own heart is, the condition of your own heart. 
No, look at his word. Commune with him. See who our God is. Drink deeply of this compassion and this kindness. At the same time, we also need to recognize that if we reject Christ, look, if you reject his compassion and his kindness, if you push away his gentleness and his patience, if you continue in your sin and your rebellion, yes, he will judge you. Yes, he does bring judgment. Because look, in his compassion, he is going to rescue his people and rescue his world from evil. You see, God's judgment is an extension of his compassion. He's not going to let evil and corruption and sin and dysfunction have the last word. No, he's going to redeem and restore all things. And so here's here's the question that you need to ask. Will you experience God's compassion and his kindness as his child? Or will you experience his compassion on the other end through his judgment? If you've never experienced the compassion and the kindness and the gentleness and the patience and the salvation of Christ, if you've never experienced those things from God, he calls to you through his word and through his spirit this morning, turn from your sin and experience the compassion and kindness of God. He is a loving father. He can save to the uttermost. It doesn't matter how you've sinned. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how big of a mess you are. All you need to do is come to him. You don't have to perform for him. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to jump through religious hoops. You just bring all that you are in your sin and brokenness to all that he is in his grace and his mercy and find forgiveness. You can experience that even this morning. The salvation you need, the forgiveness you need, the rescue you need, the renewal you need, the reformation, the love you need are found in Christ. And for those of us that have experienced this, for they've experienced the compassion and the kindness of God and salvation, for those who are beloved sons and daughters, those of us who are being renewed in the image of God, we now put on love. We've now put on the very things that God is. We now put on the character of Christ. We now put on compassion and kindness, humility and gentleness and patience. We bear with one another and forgive one another if any of us have a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven us, so we also forgive. And above all, we put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The the imagery here is like putting on clothes. And so we are clothed with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience We put these things on, and above all of those things, the big overcoat that sort of covers them all is love. And love is important that we put on love, because here's what happens. Compassion without love is just self-righteous virtue signaling. Compassion or um, kindness without love is enabling others. Humility without love becomes codependency. Gentleness without love is passivity. Patience without love is denial. And forgiveness without love is a recipe for bitterness. So we can try these things on our own. Or we can try these things on our own. But unless we are clothed in putting on the love of God, unless it is transforming our hearts, these things, we're just going to make a mess of things trying to put these things on ourselves. But when we have been transformed by divine love and we put on that divine love over these things, we truly image our God and our Savior And so, brothers and sisters, let us drink deeply, drink deeply of the love that we have in Christ. Let us drink deeply and put on compassion and kindness. Let us be those who are moved in their very core when we see the sin and suffering of others. Let us not be cold and indifferent. Let us not pull away from each other. Let's actually move towards each other with mercy and with compassion. 
Let us step into those places of sin and suffering and love others and bring gospel hope and let's serve and sacrifice for one another. Let us drink it deeply of the truth that we are dearly loved and put on kindness. Let us marvel at God's kindness to us and in that let us act kindly towards others. Let us serve and sacrifice and build others up in Christ, even when it means bringing correction, even when it's hard, even when it means it gets messy and difficult. Let our, let our presence in each other's lives be redemptive as we sharpen one another. Let's not neglect to do good, but let's overflow in goodness to one another and kindness to one another. Friends, let us drink deeply of the truth that we're dearly loved and let's put on humility and gentleness and patience. Let's not live above others in arrogance and pride. Let's not be puffed up and think we're better than one another and compete with one another. No, let's be humble before each other. Let's identify with each other in our sin, in our suffering, in our weakness. Let's draw near to each other in our sin, in our suffering. Let's be accessible to each other. Not pulling away, but accessible there freely available when people are in need. Let's be honest about our sin struggles. Let us be honest about the weakness and the pain that we're feeling, and in that, move towards each other. Let us not point fingers, but have open arms. Let us be gentle and patient with each other, not rash and reactionary, not sarcastic and cutting. Oh, friends, in this church community, let it be said that our sin and our struggles and our weakness are met with gentleness, with people who are kind, with people who are loving, people who are patient. Honesty, yes. Correction, yes. These things are important. But let, uh, let people be met with love and patience and the gentleness to build people up in Christ. In this church, let's bear with one another. Here's what this means. Look, all of you, myself included, all of us, we have habits, beliefs, quirks, little things that we do and say and believe that annoy each other. Look, you are annoying to somebody in this church. It's okay. I'm annoying to somebody in this church. It's okay. We get on each other's nerves. But what do we do? We bear with one another. We put up with one another. We don't do what the world does and retreat to our corners and lob grenades at each other and make fun of each other and sarcastically cut each other down. No, even in the annoyances that we face, we move towards each other. Because we have drunk deeply of the love of God and we've known his compassion and his kindness, we move towards each other. We put up with one another. We bear with one another in patience. And in this church, when others sin against us, may they be met with forgiveness. We are to forgive just as the Lord has forgiven us. And really, it's easy to read that as a matter of fact rather than a matter of heart. Like we can think, okay, Christ forgave me, so I need to forgive other people. But how do you forgive? In what heart posture do you forgive? Begrudgingly? Annoying? Annoyed that you have to do it? Irritated? I suppose I do it because God said I had to? Or do you do it with compassion and kindness, with gentleness and patience and humility? Look, I know sometimes forgiving is complicated. It's hard. Sometimes it's slow and it's painful and it's messy. And you need other people to walk with you in that and work those things out. But here's what's going to happen. 
when you have a heart, when you've drunk deeply of the compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience of God and your heart is overflowing with compassion and kindness, we can work through those things together. The Spirit will work in you to birth true, lasting forgiveness in your heart. And so let us be those who drink deeply of the compassion and kindness of God and put on forgiveness as those that have been forgiven. See, here's something that I think that happens, because I know this in my own heart, and I think it's probably true with, with most of us, of all of us. The, the reason we sort of get caught up in the division, in the tribalism, and we, get, we sort of get caught up in our sin, and we get maybe caught up in politics, or whatever it is that, that can kind of pull us apart and create conflict and dysfunction. The, the reason we get caught up and entrapped in those things is because we've gotten bored with God's love. Here's what I mean, especially if you've been in the church for a long time. God's love can sound so cliche. Man, yeah, I know God loves me. It's almost like this sort of like inspirational little poster you put on the wall, you look at it, and you're like, oh, that's a nice thought, but it really doesn't move you and transform you and have really any sort of bearing on your life. Like, this is how we can view God's love. It's just common. It's no big deal. It's a nice sentiment. But friends, when we do that, it's like a snorkeler saying the ocean is boring. Because the snorkeler went like three feet deep and he was like, oh yeah, 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 that's cool, that's fine. I'm bored with that. How ridiculous is that? How ridiculous would it be for a snorkeler to say that the ocean is boring when he's only gone three feet deep, when the ocean is this vast, unsearchable, deep thing thriving with life in mystery and it's this vast, overwhelming reality that you could actually never get bored with. Friends, if you are bored with the love of God, let me tell you this. Stop sipping and start drinking. Stop waiting and actually dive in. Stop being a snorkeler and start being a deep sea diver. I guarantee you what will happen is that the love of God will no longer be boring. It will be this incredibly vast, mysterious, life-giving, life-transformation reality, and you will see that a life of compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience is anything but boring. It actually calls you into some incredible adventure. Actually calls you into something that is worth giving your life to. And so let's not be a church that sips on the love of God. Let's not be a church that goes in ankle deep to the love of God. Let us drink deeply and let us deep sea dive. Let us go and try to plumb the depths, which we'll never be able to. We'll never be able to find the bottom. We'll never be able to find the sides of God's love. What an incredible invitation to just soak in and sink in and experience the fullness of God's love. And so First City, look, our world is going to continue to ask, where is the love? That's not going to go away. There's going to be a longing. Always will be a longing. It's always going to come up short. But here's the thing. We know the answer, right? Like, we know where love is. We know that love is found in God through Jesus Christ. And so let us be, let, let us be those who drink deeply of this love. The, the love this world needs, the hope of a world renewed in love is found in God and God alone. And so as those who have drank deeply of this love, as those who have put on this love and live out this love, let us be those now who go and proclaim this love. Let us take this love to the world, whether it be our neighborhoods, whether it be our jobs, whether it be in the store, wherever it is that we may go. Let us take this love, this gospel to the world. 
And let's also invite people into this community. Let's invite them in that they may experience what it looks like to be renewed and reformed by the love of God for the glory of God. Amen.